0: So I have to start off with full disclosure. I actually know Mo from my undergrad days at NYU Stern. A lot of good memories, but w- something that I can say looking back in retrospect is that I definitely did not imagine Mo becoming an entrepreneur. So Mo, um, <laughs> I guess if you just want to start off with telling the
1: listeners a little bit about your background and how you became an entrepreneur. So, my name is Mo, Chief Strategy Officer, as well as co founder of Choosy. I um, graduated from NYU Stern, majoring in finance and econ. I started out in trading, where I met Jesse and Sharon, the other two co founders at City High Yield Investment Research. Wow. And there, I covered tech, media, and telecom. Okay. And after two years of that, I went on to do restructuring investment banking at Rothschild for two years, just to kind of understand how a company is run on a more granular level. And after three years on Wall Street, I realized that I built up my fundamental corporate skill set and wanted to pursue more than just the traditional path in finance and wanted to bring the business acumen I've gleaned to building a company from the ground up. So I guess, kind of to interject, is Wall Street where you meet your co-founders apparently these days? (laughs) City, apparently. City trading. Um, Yeah, we get extremely lucky because... Um, Jesse and Sharon are friends outside of work, and we've also had a working relationship at Citi. Okay. So starting a company was just natural. And we knew how each other worked and how each other operated.
0: And I think that that's one of the most important
1: parts, especially that I think VCs look for, right, is that the
0: co-founders actually have some type of shared background, that they've been working together for a while, that they work well together. So that so that kind of trifecta was already
1: in place for you at City. Right. So I think VCs definitely care a lot about that, seeing that the co-founders aren't just people who buddied up through like a networking session and start wanted to start a company. Okay. People who worked together with each other for years. And I guess kind of the sprinkle on top for us is that we all actually left City to do different things after. So oh, wow. I, so Jesse actually left City to work on her textile manufacturing business in China. Sharon left City to pursue a PhD in Harvard for machine learning and applied math. Wow. And I left City Trading to pursue investment banking to learn the more business side of things. Ah, the investment banker. Okay. <laughs> okay. And then two years down the line, when we all wanted to start a company, it made sense for the three of us to come together and we all had complementary skill sets to bring to the table where Jesse knew the manufacturing, she knew the operation, knew the supply chain. Sharon was CTO heads all of tech. And I can oversee the general corporate strategy as well as growth acquisitions for the company.
0: So while you were an investment banker, I know from the NYU days, a lot of our fellow colleagues ended up becoming bankers. A lot of them are in private equity now. Um, Some of them, you know, went on to have some successful careers at hedge funds what was it as a banker or um, being in finance, or or I guess we can call it finance. 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 So (laughs) what was it while you were on Wall Street that really kind of, I guess, like either ached you inside or kind of what was the internal calling that was just like, no, this is not for me anymore? Because I know that we had a couple of discussions where you were like, this is, it's great and all, I'm learning a lot, but there's just a lot
1: more to life. So I guess like what was that inflection point in your life? Sure, I think... My original goal of going to investment banking was never to be a career banker. Oh, wow, okay. Um, and originally when I joined, I thought I wanted to do hedge fund, PE, et cetera. Yeah, that's and,
0: what I saw you more of as. Right,
1: right. And I wanted <laughs> to learn the fundamental skills of how to build a business and do that. But having had multiple years of experience in trading and banking, I kind of ultimately saw f- finance, if you will, as basically people kind of just understand the industry really well, and okay. they also understand companies very well. Correct. But at the core of it, it's not really building, I would say, and that's kind of what I really enjoy the most, building something from scratch, going from zero to one. Okay. And I think for most people in finance, they're very good at taking something that's already built and making it better, Okay. or looking at something that's already built and putting an educated guess on where it's going to go. Got it. Got it.
0: Okay. So I guess we can put in the plug for zero to one in here as well. If you guys haven't read the book, um, Peter Thiel's Zero to One, you should definitely read it. Great book. Great book. Absolutely. So... I guess we can finally get to the point of what is Choosy? It's, you know, I was trying to, when when I originally had the chat with you, I was trying to infer what was going on from the name, but I couldn't figure out too much. So what is Choosy?
1: Sure. So Choosy is the on-demand social shopping platform where collections are launched weekly. Okay, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and designs are basically inspired from the most in-demand social media trends. Okay. And through a combination of, Social tagging and a team of style scouts who are basically our internal content team and stylists, we can identify and manufacture products that are trend-driven, and we can deliver those products to shoppers in as little as two weeks. Wow. And I guess the genesis of this company is that in Jesse's personal time, she used to constantly browse Instagram for inspirational outfits, but whenever she found something she loved, it was either too expensive or it was sold out. Wow. Okay. And then Jesse came to me with an idea where we can deliver the top training outfits to consumers at an affordable cost while still maintaining quality. And with the combined expertise between Jesse, Sharon, and I, we realized that there was a great opportunity here to redefine the customer experience and production chain through meeting consumers where they already were, which is mostly right now on Instagram, especially for the social media savvy, and delivering exactly what they were covering to their doorsteps.
0: So how would this work exactly today? So, you know, I go on Instagram and and I guess even to kind of start off before that. So, Jessie obviously being a female, this is one of the issues that she's faced, you know, I'm assuming that she's a proxy for thousands of women, if not millions worldwide who probably face the same exact problem, but I guess, have you, have you noticed that this problem was affecting males as well? I mean, is it something that you had personally faced or guys from your market research, have you guys noticed that males face the same issue?
1: I think f- for me, I've actually never faced this issue personally. Okay. Um, I think there are definitely men out there who do face this issue. Okay. But for Choosy, we are definitely concentrating on females only right now. And okay. males could be something we target down the line. And we'll do, definitely do a lot of research on how we can target the male demographic.
0: Got it. Okay, so as a female... Let's just take myself as a persona, as a female. If I see an outfit on Instagram that I really like, say it's like something that Kylie Jenner's wearing. I see the outfit on Instagram. I'm like, whoa, I gotta have this thing. I would, I guess, go search for the same outfit online. It's either too expensive. I can't afford it. I am not Kylie Jenner, um, clearly. (laughs) Or I guess the other thing is that, or it's completely sold out. So how does Choosy come in and actually solve
1: the problem step-by-step? Sure. So I guess if you're a typical consumer, you see something, it's so other sold out it's really expensive. And okay. then you typically have to wait months for mass market retailers to get it, to get something that's a similar design but affordable. Okay. For us, we are basically able to go through social media, see what's the hottest trending things, and then every week we'll launch basically five items twice a week. And these will be the most trending based on our a combination of what we see on social media using trend driven data as well as an internal team of style scouts who go through the data and kind of digest what makes the most sense to wear, what do people really want, and does it make sense to make it and deliver to the customer.
0: So I've been following the Choose Instagram handle for a little over about two and a half, three weeks at this point, and the images on the Instagram are absolutely phenomenal. Gorgeous models having a fantastic time. Um, quite idyllic. And I really wish I was amongst them right now, but I'm in a room with Mo recording a podcast. So um, (laughs) I am a little jealous of them, Mo, I can't lie. Um, But I guess so. those style scouts that you mentioned, those are the style scouts that are actually going out and kind of assessing the landscape as to what's trending right now, what's hot, what you guys should be offering. So when you talk
1: about the part that's social media driven, how does that work to the extent that you can disclose it? Right. So in this new age of social media, I think celebrities, influencers have millions of followers. And under every one of their posts, there could be anywhere from hundreds of thousands to millions of comments saying, where can I buy it? Where is this? Where can I get this from? Yep. and Or that dress looks so nice. Mm-hmm. And for us, through our combination of tech team as well as Style Scouts, we are basically able to sort and go through social media and see which posts are the highest engagement as well as which posts are users generally being attracted to. Got it. And those are the posts that we know has have market depth behind if we make that production. And then that's how we know basically how much demand to give. Got it. And in addition to that, the nature of our business model is actually, I would say it's quite sustainable in the sense it's a zero inventory model. So currently in retail, most traditional retailers, they have billions of dollars in inventory because the current nature of retail is that retailers try to predict what people want. Yep. They make it and then they spend marketing dollars trying to convince consumers this is what you really want. Correct. For us, we have two drops of five items every week. Oh, wow. And then there's a timer obviously associated with that, so when the item gets replaced with the next iteration, you can't buy anymore. Due to the unique Agile supply chain that we have set up, we are actually able to start production after the timer ends. Oh, wow. So what that means is we have an exact number of what size to make, and basically it's truly on-demand production. And that's how you can basically get the products to the consumers with zero
0: access. How close is this in reality to having zero inventory?
1: It's very minimal in respect to how much we're actually producing and selling out to the customers. And not only does it positively impact our balance sheet because we don't have to do inventory markdowns at the end of the year to clear inventory, we also reduce landfills, such as what you see by most traditional fast fashion.
0: Oh, wow, I didn't know at all about that. So what is this landfill
1: portion? Right. So there are certain names in this fast fashion industry where they produce a ton of clothes and they try to market it out to consumers. Okay. So in those instances where they can't sell them, it's actually cheaper for them to actually destroy it. And they put it into oh, wow. landfills. So yeah, you should read up on it. It's, it's on Google, too.
0: For the listeners that
1: don't know what fast fashion is, how would you define it or what is the industry definition for fast fashion? To be honest, that term has a bunch of different meanings. And for me, fast fashion is something that's you can procure very cheap. Okay. Um, quality might not be the best, but it's very fast. And instead of buying one and holding onto it for a while, it's kind of buying one, using it. And then when you don't want it anymore, if it doesn't work anymore, like wrong size, you just go buy another one. Got it. Got it. Okay. So now that you guys are working... Um,
0: on Choosey full-time together. Can you speak a little bit about how the concept was originally tested? If there was a beta done of any sort, how you guys how you guys kind of really tested the
1: idea before it came to fruition? Sure, so back in September of last year, um, we actually had a four-day trial period. Oh wow, okay. Um, where basically we tested four SKUs, um, so four different items, and we sent out 120 DMs, 120,000, sorry, DMs at the time, and Throughout that 120,000 DMs, we actually had 30K of total revenue for that month. Oh, wow. So okay. that was kind of when we first knew that the market for this existed. And at that time, the actual supply chain and packaging wasn't set up. So Jesse actually had to pan package everything at a time.
0: Oh, wow. So and the 120,000 DMs that actually went out,
1: those were... 120,000. 120,000. So those were links to a specific SKU? Yeah. They we would just literally say, hey, notice you liked... Kim Kardashian's dress, um, would you be interested in buying something that's similar? Some okay. More. Wow. Wow. What is Choosy's mission at the end of the day? So Choosy's mission. So I think Choosy was created for the social ma- media savvy shopper. And because of the nature of our business, we are trying to return power to the customer. And our mission is basically being able to have the people tell us what they want and us make it for them versus the other way around, which is the current paradigm in retail. Got it. Got it. Okay. That's really interesting.
0: So I was actually listening to another one of the podcasts while back on this general entrepreneurship and a friend and I were actually listening to the co-founders of Wayfair speak. Um, So Neera and his co-founder, and they were really mentioning in the podcast that not all founders are always particularly passionate about the problem. So what part of Choosy's business
1: are you particularly passionate about? For me, it's creating the world's first e-commerce platform that enables shoppers to buy trending apparel in real time due to the combination of our AI technology and agile supply chain. So I kind of mentioned this earlier where we incorporate trends on social media through data-driven approach and then utilize our unique supply chain model that's set up in China and then the combination of these allow us to create a minimal balance inventory business. And that is especially rare in the retail industry filled with waste and access. And coming from restructuring banking, where my entire job was helping solve distressed companies, I saw most of the reason why a lot, why a lot of retail companies were struggling was, one, brick and mortar, obviously. Yeah. Footsteps are leaving. And two, access inventory.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. In the research that you guys have done in regards to kind of this technology being the first, or this
1: approach being this first, there is nothing even similar to it out there from what you guys had researched. Unfortunately, I can't disclose too much, but I think right now we're definitely very innovative and competitors may try to imitate down the line, but okay. right now we're focused on choosing.
0: So you mentioned part of the supply chain being based in China. So what are the realities of having a global business and what are the kind of the practical aspects that people may not really take into account? Like what are those challenges of just you know working globally?
1: I think for one, uh, time difference is a huge one. Right? Absolutely, yeah. So for example, so do you sleep? Um, I try to, okay. I try to. Um, <laughs> but there have definitely been fire drills that okay. have occurred in the China office where it has made me get up at two, three a.m. to solve certain fire drills. But I think at the end of the day, right? Both both offices are part of one company, fulfilling one vision. Yeah. For me, it's China office, New York office is one office
0: for me. Uh, Banking prep should have you know, really been fantastic for you in terms of getting no
1: sleep at all. It was, it was great. Uh, <laughs> it was great. I actually don't have too much experience myself working with the China team because that's actually been ma- mainly Jessie. Okay. And she's the kind of operations and supply chain genius who are able to kind of go talk to the China team and tell them exactly what needs to be done. Okay. And they're the ones who deliver the ultimate product to us at the end in the way that we envision. Got it. What are some of the unexpected
0: encounters or challenges that you faced uh, when starting the business or the business as a whole
1: faced that you guys didn't really anticipate at the beginning? Sure. So obviously our supply chain currently, I think, is probably one of the most complicated to create and execute. Okay. And some of the potential challenges that may stem from this is that once we do launch and if we are successful, competitors might try to catch on to what we are doing, and then they will try to imitate and innovate to try to compete with us. However, due to the complex nature of our supply chain, I think this actually is a huge advantage for us because it will be pretty much close to impossible to replicate within a short amount of time. Wow. Okay. So if I wanted to replicate this today, how long would it take me? It depends how much resources you have, but I don't I don't, <laughs> I don't I don't I'm not I don't think I can comment on that. Uh, okay. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of trade-off decisions
0: that come with starting um a new venture. So as a business leader yourself today, what are some of your non-negotiables, some of the points that you're just not willing to kind of concede on?
1: Sure, um, I think for us um, as a company, ethics is especially important and okay. that kind of permeates through all areas of our business, okay, um, both US and China side. And that's kind of bedrock of building and sustaining a long-term business.
0: What are some of the points that entrepreneurs should be thinking about when it comes to ethics within their
1: business? Sure. So I think ethics is something that you really have to cement in the early stages, especially when the team is small. You can control for the standards of ethics within the company, and you definitely don't want to cut corners or do something that you wouldn't want someone else to know. And once you have that established bedrock of good ethics in the start, then that kind of builds on the company culture. And that's what will really help you scale as a company and make the culture sustainable, making sure everyone's happy and willing to work and productive. One of the next parts that I'll get into is what a lot of young entrepreneurs
0: out there or people that want to become entrepreneurs are, it it might be of some value for them. I guess we'll kind of just dive into the pitch process at this point. We can start off with a concept of a term sheet. So for those of the listeners that don't know what a term sheet is, I guess you just want to explain that at a high level real
1: quick. Sure. Very high level. A term sheet is basically a document that an investor, usually a VC, will send over detailing how much they're going to fundraise you at and what valuation the company at. So what was this process actually of like from
0: deciding that, hey, we actually need to raise a round to fund our vision, fund this business? And what was the experience of structuring and negotiating the term sheet when you actually got
1: to it? So if you could just walk us through that journey. Sure. So I guess my experience with the pitch process, um, we joined ERA, which is an incubator, early round accelerator. We joined them early January. Okay. So the pitch process actually really began then as Jesse was able to get introduced by her mentors to some of their investors. Okay. And then we were grateful enough to have received a few term sheets pretty early on. And fortunately, the momentum snowballed on and we were able to meet with some of the most respected investors in our space. So it's definitely a learning experience navigating and managing everyone's expectations as well as sharing our vision. And in terms of structuring and negotiating the term sheet at a very high level without going into too much details, we were extremely humbled to have caught the interest of some investors that were at the top of our list. Our term sheet negotiations were a balance of eagerness to work with the right partners, as well as the amount of capital raised and valuation that would best position us for success. Got it. And needless to say, we are excited to have come to terms that satisfied all parties involved.
0: One of the misconceptions that I think a lot of new entrepreneurs have is, I want to just raise from, you know, venture capitalists, I want to go for a raise, I want to go for a raise. And as part of that process, a lot of entrepreneurs fall into this trap of, I just want to go for the highest valuation possible, and they don't really pay attention to forecasting the relationship that they're going to have with the venture capitalists, whoever is funding them, be that, you know, an angel, whether it's an institutional round or whatnot. Can you just comment on the importance of picking the right
1: partner over going for the highest valuation? I think as attractive as it is to just go for the highest valuation, and I know it's very tempting, there are definitely a lot of other factors that you just have to look at when picking the right partner to fund you. So for us, NEA was our lead investor. And I think that chemistry was established pretty early on between us and their lead associate, which is Charlotte Ross, and their partner, Tony Florence. And for them, they've had a rock star... Track record of investments. They've had decades of experience helping companies grow, and NEA as a name has just been huge. They've been around for I was I say almost forty years. Yeah, you know, they've had a lot. Of been there, done that with even just their portfolio companies. So right now, whenever I run into an issue, it's not just about oh, I got a lot of money because we raised at a high valuation. It's more hey, um, Charlotte, can you help me kind of digest this problem? What are your thoughts? Or hey, can you? I wanted to pick someone else's brain. I noticed their portfolio company of yours. Can you put me in touch? So I think as young entrepreneurs, you definitely want to have as much help as you can in terms of advice from people who have done that. Both whether that's from VCs or from portfolio companies that they may have owned, and having the right partner there can just provide you with so much network of advice that is just you just can't measure by how much you raise because you raise at a high valuation. Got it. So the entrepreneurs should really be
0: looking at.
1: At the partnership,
0: kind of almost like a marriage, that is this relationship actually going to pan out long term? When you go through a lot of this common entrepreneurship reading, there's been a couple of um, stats that venture capitalists actually tend to destroy more value than they actually create. So I guess that kind of reinforces the point that you should be really selective about who you're working with and actually ensure that they provide long term value beyond deploying capital.
1: Right, right. And deploying capital is obviously step one, and you definitely have to make sure you see steps two through whatever it is that they can provide much more value than just that. And I think for us, for all our investors, we were fortunate enough to have that relationship with them. Got it. Okay. A lot of entrepreneurs
0: that I've personally spoken with are always really concerned with hey, you know, my revenue projections, hey, my cost projections, hey, my this DCF that I have incorporated in my pitch, you know, is this accurate? <laughs> to the extent that you can comment on it, in the pitch process that you went through, how
1: much were the financial forecasts actually focused upon? Well, first off, you should never use a DCF when valuing a startup. Um, but in terms of financial forecasts, I think it really depends on what round that you're raising at, right? So for series A, B, and C, financial forecasts are huge. They're going to be meticulously tick and tied by the investors. But in the seed round, I think it's much more the idea, the product market fit, as well as the quality of the founding team. And even though financial forecasts were important, I think everyone involved at the table also know that especially the revenue is kind of up in the air because most of the seed rounds are pre-revenue. So, I think the cost side of the equation can be much more rationalized, and people can look at the cost side, and they'll pay more attention to that. Got it. But in terms of revenue forecasts, I don't think they're especially they're that important when, it, especially at the seed round. Okay. So speaking to your seed round, four point five million
0: dollars, 5.4, 5. 5. 4, Okay, <laughs> flip the numbers around. <laughs> Millionaire, regardless, um, five point four million dollars with. NEA is the lead investor. You pretty much hit the jackpot as far as entrepreneur dreams go. Um, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs that are looking to raise a seed round in the current environment? The second part of the question, um, which was kind of alluded to in the first part, was how important is the overall you know macro environment when it comes to raising a seed
1: round? Sure. So I think for us, for choosing, the most important pieces of the puzzle of how we were able to raise such a round is kind of the target market, which is really the founder's vision where we saw there was a market need for what we're trying to do. Got it. And assembling the right team. Like I mentioned, the three co-founders, we've all had professional working experience at City out of graduation. We're also friends in real life. and Having that level of understanding with each other drew the attention of most of our VC investors as well. And moreover, it's not just working together in a common area. It's We all diverged, got complementary skill sets in each of our respective areas, and then we came back. And now we have eat something that we can call our own to add value to the company. And in terms of advice for entrepreneurs, I would say even though it might seem intimidating at first, and it's never smooth sailing. I think as long as you work hard, find the right team, things will always work out in the end. Got it. How important is the overall macroeconomic environment when you're actually looking to raise a seed? Does it have any bearing at all? Uh, I think it obviously does. So, for example, I think right now, credit markets, equity markets are good. Um, there's a lot of at capital around. Yeah. So I would say right now, it's relatively easier to raise money than, say, you're in 2008. I think right now, the environment's quite good, and I don't see it going down anytime soon, but I think the environment that you're raising capital in is definitely very important. Got
0: it. And before I go to the next question, I actually want to go back to um, a part of your previous answer. You know, you mentioned that um you and the other co-founders are actually friends so when it comes to working with your friends you know how do you go about solving challenges when obviously it's people that you have a fantastic not only working relationship with but to an extent you know a personal friendship
1: with as well I think being friends is actually a pro, not a con in terms of working together for us, at least. For us, we were all friends in real life before the startup. And what that translates to is within the startup, if we see something that we think the other co-founders might appreciate or might want to know, or if we have any feedback on their divisions, we feel very open with each other and we are open to communicate with each other exactly what our thoughts are. And for us, that's huge because I think clear transparency and communication between the co-founders is one of the essential building blocks of a successful business. So doing a little bit of a
0: zigzag, you know, I kind of got an interesting thought from the last answer that you had, which was the overall market conditions having a bearing on, you know, those looking to raise a seed round. So there's almost a clear consensus that valuations are pretty much inflated on the street right now. And, you know, kind of everyone, there's, there's out of the people that I've met that I speak with, there's a lot of interest in people just looking to become entrepreneurs. I want to become an entrepreneur. I want to start a business. I want to become a millionaire. And part of it is due to this kind of publicity of the inflation evaluations that are being seen across the street. So, you know, what advice do you have for those looking to start a company right now and become an entrepreneur? I think
1: the environment that we're in definitely... Attracts a lot of people who want to be entrepreneur for the sake of being entrepreneur because they think it's easy. But my personal take is that it's never that easy. I think for most businesses that really do succeed down the line and are sustainable and can scale, there really is a product market fit for that company. And the co founders and the kind of the first few hires, the key hires, they all have to work together and be on the same page and know how each other work. And they all have to be united under that vision of the product market fit and what that company is trying to accomplish. So, there may be companies that are raising capital right now just because of the nature of the environment that they might not have been able to raise capital in a more depressing environment. But those companies I don't see will be the ones that will win out relative to those who have a true merit to their business.
0: Got it. So, you know, there's this comment saying that when starting a business,
1: you should kind of be solving a problem that you faced yourself. Would you agree with that? I think I would. So, especially the founder. I think the founder has to feel some sort of personal attachment to the company. And for us, that's Jesse. Got it. And she basically went through that experience, saw the opportunity, worked in China in her family's textile manufacturing business, and saw the opportunity and saw a way to capture it. And then she united Sharon and I into the vision.
0: For the listeners out there that obviously have now just learned about Truzy. Tell us a little bit more about the Instagram handle, how they can go out and learn more about Choosy,
1: when it's releasing, and when we can finally start ordering clothing using Choosy. To learn more about Choosy, we have an Instagram handle, Get Choosy. We have a Facebook page, Choosy. And we have a landing page right now where you can sign up on our pre launch and get your emails in. So you can be the first ones aware of when we do launch. We launched July 24th. It's coming up. Coming up soon. Uh, coming up full site will be live, and then you can get five of the most coveted trends on social media for an affordable price, all under
0: $100. Mo out, Chief Strategy Officer at Choosy, releasing soon. Check out their Instagram handles, go to their Facebook page, learn more about the company, and do support. Thanks so much, Mo. It was great speaking with you. Thank you, guys.